Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have There Will Be Blood, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Dano, and Kevin J. O'Connor. Based on Oil by Upton Sinclair, screenplay, and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue on with our PTA cask of films directed by the director. We did Boogie Nights last week, and now from 2007, There Will Be Blood. Uh, really excited to talk about this one. It had been a while since I had seen it, um, sat down and watched it uh, beginning to end. But this should be a pretty interesting conversation uh, talking about not only just Daniel Day-Lewis, just about this whole story and kind of like this rise. I you know I talked about last week. I really like rise and fall stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Citizen Kane feel to this a little bit for you. Mm-hmm. I saw this in 2007 when it was re- released theatrically and I hadn't seen it all the way through since then. I'd seen a few parts. Uh, the things in my mind that stuck out then still stick out and played just as well as they did today. And I know we'll get into that, but yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I saw it. I saw it then too. It might've been a recommendation from you to, uh, to the class, but it definitely prompted me to to go see it because I saw it in its original theatrical run as well. But a little bit of housekeeping before we get started here. Uh, we just announced our Patreon lineup for May. Uh, it's going to be a doozy. We're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, our Rye Watch along this month is Deep Blue Sea. That'll be fun. <laughs> that's going to be that's going to be. When's the last time you sat down and, and watched that? Oh gosh. I... I don't even know. A, a long, long time. Long time. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And then um, later on the, that month, we're going to do our neat episode on Training Day. Training Day. Anton Fuqua's uh, Training Day. Mm-hmm. We haven't done a Denzel Washington movie. I don't even think we've talked about Ethan Hawke, really. Um, we've talked about that screenwriter before, Mr. David Ayers. We sure have. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that that's gonna be a lot of fun. If you want to sign up for that to get those exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash rye smile films. It's the only place they will be uh, available. Okay. Um, we had a lot of really good interesting comments to uh, our uh, our flight question last week about Mark Wahlberg and um, both Rachel Perovich and Blake Reese uh, wanted to know why we didn't include the other guys <laughs> from uh, comedy. Uh, it's it was in, it was in consideration that that movie is fairly hilarious. Uh, Tim Trebo uh, put his uh, uh, selection in there as the Andy Samberg, Mark Wahlberg talking to animal skit. <laughs> Hotch three two five said fear. Welcome to the team. Yeah. And Steve or Hey now also put his vote in for the other guys. Lots of great choices. As we prefaced, wait till we do Planet of the Apes from 2001. We get to talk about all the worst Mark Wahlberg movies. Oh my gosh, is that coming? <laughs> Mark Wahlberg would wish you'd missed this cast. Or the Summer <laughs> Box Office Hall of Shame. Shame. Just, just talking about that movie, I was... The, 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 you've seen it, right? That ending wants to be a twist ending... But it makes no sense mm-hmm. whatsoever. And the the plans were to have sequels to explain the ending, but you literally leave the theater and you're like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah, that was um, an attempt. 
poorly cast from the word go. I, gosh, I don't even remember well enough to go back to that specific ending. Uh, it's not worth a revisit, though. You're it, gonna, it was going to have to read about it. Yeah, it was, yeah it, was, it was Tim Roth as Lincoln. Oh, there you go. That's right. General Thade. Yep. And I was like, but how did the, he went back in time? How did oh, I just oh, fuck it? <laughs> like, it's just a mess. <laughs> Excellent. But let's start this out. We got some really great questions this week. Great film to talk about this week. Let's get this started with our flight question. you did the music for this thing Mm-mm. johnny greenwood of radiohead oh really yeah he's actually been scoring since this film all of paul thomas anderson's films is that a band you love i do like radiohead and he's not the only one that's kind of dabbled into uh soundtracks tom york is also he did the new suspiria film so interesting yeah flight question dealing with daniel day lewis he has six nominations for best actor three wins of the six, I'm going to ask you to rank your three personal favorites. Win or loss doesn't matter. Just straight from the nomination variety, you get to choose any of those three in order of third, second, and first most favorite. So do you want to go first? Yeah, I love it. Let's hear number uh, three. I kind of made a little creed with myself when you said this is kind of your own personal choice, and I kind of said, I was like, okay, Jesse, like, you know, you talk about... You talk about the Dark Knight a lot. You talk about Raging Bull and De Niro a lot, and those films. So I was like, I was like, I'm specifically not going to mention those, but they're all honorable mentions. You know, I like, I like a lot of those films. Um, you know, I like Hans Landa and Inglorious Bastards. So I'm not picking these ones. I kind of want to talk about some performances that maybe I've mentioned, but not not frequently. Number three for me, uh, we talked about him last week because he was in consideration for the role of Dirk Diggler. It's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And Matt, I think you and I are both in agreement that we could probably never sit through The Revenant in its entirety again. Not that he's not good in it, but it seems like lifetime achievement at that point. The one he should have won for, the performance I really like of him, it's uh, Jordan Belfort from The Wolf of Wall Street. I just think of, you know, when you're an actor, you know, uh, the the material be damned and and you know how just like morally inept like everything he does in that movie is it's like everything you want in like a, a character to play I mean it's just got such a range from rise to fall the lewd scene of him spazzing out is is hilarious and I knew I was gonna love that movie and especially his performance when they're talking about hiring the little people to throw at targets and then he wants a tranquilizer to put one out. And then Jonah Hill says, you can't look him in the eyes because their wires get crossed. Is when he says, we're going to bring him in here. And we're just going to make him just like one of us. One of us. Gooble gobble. One of, and I was like, I'm in. Like, like I, I get what they're going for. Uh, I think Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club won that year. Also a pretty good performance. Good good movie for him. But I, I got to go Leo as Jordan. I mean, it's it's a wild movie. It's a wild performance. And that's kind of that's kind of what I'm going for here. That's a good choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think you were going to go there. That's one I didn't project for you. Good choice. I like it. It's kind of gone up on my list of Scorsese films as well. Um, the more that I kind of go back to it and check it out. What do you got? Okay. Uh, boy, this is um, a tough one. I'm just going to make this decision. Okay. I'm going to go at number three. And this is close to number two. Okay. 
But I'm going to give it to Mr. J.K. Simmons mm. as Terrence Fletcher and Whiplash. That's yeah, pretty good. It's, he's, he's in my cadre floating, too. Yeah. Mm. Uh, boy, there's a lot of choices here, right? So mm-hmm. it's hard to find three, and it could change tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a whole show on that, so I'm not going to rehash that. That movie works mostly because of him. Miles Teller's terrific, but that movie works mostly oh, because yeah, of J.K. It, Simmons. It's the J.K. Simmons show in that one. Good, good one. Comes up a lot, right? You and I talk a lot about motivations of the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that movie handles that just about as well as any movie we've covered on here in that particular space. What I like most about it, too, is, you know, J.K. Simmons was always kind of like that two-bit player on, like, Oz or Spider-Man. And I kind of like that he got his moment to shine. And when he did, and he delivered. Yeah. Great choice. Thank you. Number two for me, Matt, this is going to be wild. Oh, I can't, we've never even talked about this movie before. Maybe not even this actress before, but it's happening today. I am going Elizabeth Taylor in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, this is the one of Mike Nichols' uh, very uh, earliest films. I actually revisited this uh, last year during quarantine. And wow, it's just between her, Richard Burton, George Siegel, and Sandy Dennis. I mean, it's an acting powerhouse, but... I think Elizabeth Taylor, and maybe you'll kind of agree, I mean, the Cleopatra glitz and glam and however many husbands she has is like one side of the Hollywood story, but her in the right role is amazing. We could look at something like A Place in the Sun, um, and then here in Who's, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, gotta check this out. I mean, whether it's on the stage, but but check the film out. She's she's amazing in it, and she won, won the Academy, Academy Award that year for Best Actress, so... That's going to be my number two. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Um, number two for me is, I don't think so much the film, but I think something that's long overdue, and for this particular actor, something that serves a little bit more lifetime achievement than it should for terrific performance. It's Paul Newman, and it's Paul Newman in The Color, Color of Money. money. Yep. <laughs> uh, talk about way overdue. Yeah. Um, I don't even think that's his best Eddie Felson, to be honest with you. No, it's not. He's better in The Hustler. Yeah. But I think what they were able to do with that script, and there's a lot of talent involved in that film, Scorsese mm-hmm. and Tom Cruise and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is really fantastic in that. Mm-hmm. To take, I always get her and Mary Sternberg and confused. <laughs> yeah, no, but they, yeah, <laughs> kind of same similar names and similar looks. It's the curly hair. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, could be. you know, we we're going to talk about the rise and fall and rise and all that today. That's really low to rise to eviscerating your entire dream and the hustler to a resurrection of sorts <clears throat> in a type of film that I think if handled well, can be great. And that's the con movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the return of that performance as Fast Eddie Felson by Paul Newman checked a lot of boxes on a career that is noteworthy. And that's a wild understatement. And a strong performance that's kind of overshadowed today because Tom Cruise in it, and that's just a bigger name. Yeah. But I love that film. I love his performance in that. And I also love the vulnerability of that character. Fast Eddie Felsen is such a bastard in The Hustler. And by this, he's still a bastard, but he's getting on in age a little bit and he doesn't have quite the same edge. 
to do some of the evil things that he did in The Hustler. Piper Laurie, I'm talking to you. Do you uh, do you like the Eric Clapton song? Love it. But the, it's, <laughs> they used to it's pl- Clapton. They used to play that song at the gym, all, the music video, all the mm-hmm. time. And I'd be like, man, what is this? And I was like, <laughs> you just kind of put a bug in my ear. I, what would be, I think, kind of an interesting cast? Because I think it's an interesting period in the director's filmography would be Scorsese in the mid to late 80s. Because it's Color of Money, After Hours with Griffin Dunn, uh, The King of Comedy, and... Uh, this is like all leading up to like pre Goodfellow, Last Temptation of Christ. Like, there's some interesting stuff because I don't necessarily know if it all works, but there's some interesting, almost experimentation that's going on with Scorsese at that time. So, great choice. Thank you. Yeah. Did you see that one coming? Uh, I kind of thought maybe some stuff from The Hustler would be showing up. Uh, my number one, uh, it's uh, one of the best actors of all time. And just disclaimer, if we weren't talking about there will be blood this week, uh, Daniel day Lewis would probably be my number one pick for, for this particular question. And just about many different questions that we could talk about in just regards to acting. My number one is for an actor that got it probably again for the wrong film, (laughs) uh, seems lifetime achievement. but I don't think he's ever been better. And I don't think a character, you know, bar Daniel Plainview, I don't know. They can duke it out here at the top has Mm. ever had a more compelling arc in film. And it's Al Pacino as Michael Corleone in the Godfather part two. I mean, he's good in the first one. And you think by part two, you're like, okay, like, can we give it to the guy already? I don't even know what won those two years. But there's no way it was better than what he gives. And Matt, the scene that always kind of just reaffirms that is when Diane Keaton confronts him with, I aborted our child, Michael, because I have to end the Sicilian blood lineage thing. And he just like, he slaps her, throws her on the ground, and he just starts going. He's like, you will not take my children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're just like, how far mad has this guy gone? He slips so far into the abyss by the end of that film. And that last shot of him just kind of sitting on, on like the porch and like the leaves blowing. And you're just like, mm-hmm. you did this, man. This is all you're doing. Yeah. And end the franchise there because it's perfect. But man, when has Pacino ever been better than like that, that, that movie? Never. Not even Scarface or like any of those other films. Like it's masterful. I think that's really well said because in that period, there's a lot of good stuff. We're talking about Serpico. We're talking about Dog Day Afternoon. There's a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. in that time period that he also did really well. Like Mm -hmm. the latter version, like the Scent of a Woman, um, Mm -hmm. Al Pacino is different. Yeah. The Scarface version is a little bit different. But that period for him, boy, he's got his finger on the pulse of excellence, doesn't he? he's, He's tapped into something that like Brando tapped into in like the 50s, that like De Niro got into in like the 80s, like... He's just like on and like mm-hmm. when an actor's on, you get all the films that you, you meant. You didn't mention one that I think really, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called the panic in needle park. Mm-hmm. He plays like a heroin mm-hmm. junkie. Yeah. Yep. That, that's good too. That scene that you're talking about is a memorable one. And the one that I always think of in that film is when he slams the door mm-hmm. in her face, just so cold. Mm-hmm. And he comes in looking like a million bucks in that. Isn't that a camel the, color? Isn't that at the mom's and, funeral? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about uh, the Godfather. Might be like two episodes. (laughs) It's the part two, so dense, Mm -hmm. filled with material. But uh, everyone's really good in those. And maybe you know Coppola knew what he was getting at. But a lot of that, I think, is Al Pacino. He was just he just tapped into something that was remarkable. What's your number one? It's not too far from yours, actually. Ooh, 
just going to give the prequel version of what you came up with, okay. right? So it's going to be Brando and the original. Mm-hmm. Um, the cat's genius. The cotton stuffed into his cheeks is genius. The underplayed nature but cerebral effect of that character, Vito Corleone, is every bit the iconic gangster. What's the scene? What what scene from the film like really like hammers that home for you with him? The opening, yeah, when he's in there and he's just taking those requests mm-hmm. from everybody. But what I love about that is, if that's the introduction to him, mm-hmm. then the close with him shows how much he loved his family too, and that's chasing Anthony mm-hmm. in the orchard, I believe. Oh yeah, with the orange peel in his mouth, where mm-hmm. he has the heart attack. So you see. This man was able, and this is the struggle with Michael in the second film, mm-hmm. to separate family and business. Yeah, He does that so, so well. I watched that first film, and I don't know which one's better. I don't even want to have that discussion because it's not a discussion. They're kind of the same movie, really. I could tell you this, right? I pro- could probably watch the first one maybe every day. Yeah. I can only watch the second one once in a blue moon. Okay, so maybe your vote's for number one. Huh? But I think the second movie is better. Wow. So, boy, that's loaded. We have to figure, uncover that. Figure that out. <laughs> is that a cask? Is that, I mean, is the Godfather yeah, a cask? Absolutely. Do we have to do number three then? Uh, yeah. We do, don't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that balance makes him the grandfather that I never had. Mm-hmm. It's almost worth the risk for all of the terrible things that the Corleone family is involved in and the terrible things that they have to do to keep the family upright and ahead of the rival four families in New York and later Hyman Roth and everybody Mm -hmm. else. Sitting down to dinner with him Mm -hmm. would almost make that other stuff worth it. Absolutely. In a fictitious way, not in real life, but he's just as violent and calculated as he is. He's really quite lovely in that film. And that's how I want to be my grandfather. Do you um do you kind of think that was the like the last lucidest performance that Brando was able to give? Because he kind of goes off the rails like right after this. Island of Dr. Moreau and um all that other later stuff. I guess the freshman was okay. Well, I mean, he's good in like Apocalypse Now and like Superman, but like he like would show up so unprepared. I I'm just saying, I think this was like the last time he was like in it and was like really in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a this was a great kind of research thing because I, I went down his path too. He was nominated four years in a row for best actor. 51, 52, 53, and 54. And he finally won in 54 for on the waterfront. Is that the wild ones one of those, huh? Wild ones, Julius Caesar, and I think Guys and Dolls. So he had a stretch there where he was just he was he, So you brought up the other one that was my my second close. Mm. And that's on the waterfront. Yeah, good. He's good in that. And even Rumi <laughs> Saint's good in that movie too. That's Filled with Carl Malden's good in that yeah, film. That's Lee good, J. Cobb is good in that that's film. Just a Rod good, Sterling's good in that it's film. It's just a good movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a tough one. Uh. Any so other many good honorable mentions real quick? Oh, um, yeah. Denzel and Training Day is fantastic. Oh, I'm sure we'll get into that. I'm yeah. sure we will. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one that was kind of kicking the tires on. I'll let you have an honorable mention. Well, I always think about just like the 18 to 23 minutes. I can't remember the time span, but it's Anthony Hopkins. And I mean, he just won on Sunday for a movie that I will never watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some Alzheimer's The Father. It's just That just ain't my tea, man. Uh, but I like that Silence of the Lambs got at least, uh, I don't call that horror. It's like psychological thriller. But even, I mean, look at all the times Hitchcock's films got missed. That film finally got some recognition, and he's great in it. 
And it's the scene when he confronts the, the scene for me in that one is when he confronts the senator and he's like, will your teeth start shaking when you're a little, or when he's talking about the daughter, like, oh my gosh, the wheelies. Any ideas for Jimmy Stewart? Uh, Did he kick maybe, in there? maybe more so for the films he was never nominated for, mm-hmm. like Vertigo, uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm-hmm. He did win for Philadelphia Story. Yeah, he's good in that. Yeah. Uh, and he's also good in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That's what I was going to say. Did he get nominated? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so great choice. I mean, we could just do a whole episode on, like, should they have won? Should they not have won? Should they have won for this? Should they have won for that? I mean, it could just it, endless discussions. Biggest sins perpetrated by the voting board of the Oscars. Right, those people that get to vote and they, they maybe don't even finish the movie. <laughs> but they got a great swag bag. Maybe they didn't finish this movie. Let's get right into it. And our or let us know your choices on Facebook or Instagram, Productions at gmail.com. I'm sure that would be a, a very interesting conversation. So let's get our, uh, this started with our review breakdown of There Will Be Blood. I do my own drilling. And the men that work for me work for me. And they are men I know. I make it my business to be there and to see their work. I don't lose my tools in the hole and spend months fishing for them. I don't botch the cementing off and let water in the hole and ruin the whole lease. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. We offer you the bond of family that very few oil men can understand. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. And that's because my Coyote Hills well has just come in. I have a string of tools already to put to work. I can load a rig onto trucks and have them here in a week. I have business connections so I can get the lumber for the derrick. Such things go by friendship in a rush like this. And this is why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. One thing I can really appreciate by with Paul Thomas Anderson just right off the bat, especially last week and then this week, when I first saw this and then even more so with this viewing, I don't know diddly about the oil business, the process, what, how you mine oil from the ground. And I like when films, especially his films now, that give me a snapshot into a world that I would never be in. Never going to be in the porn. I don't know. I don't know. I'll keep my options open. <laughs> no, you're not. Um, but I would never. It's a snapshot into a world that you won't ever occupy. And to kind of see the processes, I kind of like. I kind of like that aspect of this film. Kind of how they oiled, especially back then. Two weeks in a row. Yeah, interesting occupation, so to speak. Huge tenant to making an interesting film. Mm-hmm. I know nothing about Derek's. I don't know how you build that structure. I don't even know why it's any towered. I don't even know why you need a structure. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But he's really good at it and it makes a very interesting watch. And that's very evident in the scene, which we're going to get to. I'm sure when the first rig, the Derek explodes. Oh yeah. Um, if you're able to present the world Mm -hmm. in a way that's understandable and entirely foreign, that's a huge, huge, huge challenge. Yeah. And he does it really well because, like you said, I don't know anything about that world either. Mm-hmm. But I feel like having watched this film. I know a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't exactly understand the pulley system and the rope and how there's enough tension in the rope to make sure that the needle penetrates the air. But, but I'm kind of getting it. And that's done in what I think most people would probably find, and I think you might agree with this too, mm-hmm. a world that until this film 
I didn't know anything about it. And mostly I didn't care. Yeah. The last time I saw drilling in a movie that kind of mattered was Splinter in the Grass. And I haven't <laughs> seen it since then and I haven't cared. Do you know what I mean? Which drilling are you talking about? Uh, man? Yeah. <laughs> it's a loaded comment. Oh indeed. gosh. Oh, Splinter in the Grass. The great movie. Yeah. Uh, Pat Hinkle dying in a can in, in the cans. Yeah. Uh, let's start at the beginning. I kind of for, had forgotten a little bit about how this film started out, which was essentially 12 minutes with no dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of seeing plain view in his element. So establish your main character in the world he's going to become, we're going to become familiar with. And here it looks like he's like, he's like looking you know, for like gold deposits, right? I love that opening. Mm-hmm. That's yes. I, that's what I thought too. Alone. Gold or silver or something. Mm-hmm. Just the minor. Yeah. That bit when it's really windy and he's sort of huddled with that cup of coffee by that little tiny fire. Mm-hmm. You know that in that moment, Daniel Day-Lewis, he might be acting because he's all in, but he's got to be freezing cold in that moment. Did you kind of get, especially from that particular shot sequence, did you kind of get like a Western vibe off of this film? Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. I yeah. think really this viewing, I was just like, well, this is kind of like, I mean, we're not quite the civilized, we're getting there, but we're still the savage West, so to speak, especially with some of the things he's he's going to kind of go about doing, but... And it's a bit later into our history. It starts in 1897 and is done Correct. by essentially 1930. Yep. Um, yeah, so Savage is right, but it's not, you know, 1805. Mm-hmm. So we're getting on in a little bit of what's left to be drilled, mm-hmm. but a really core tenant, and it has a lot to do with the sound you played, the pitch that he's going to use to buy him enough grace to do what he wants to do is essentially civilization. Mm-hmm. That's what he promises those people in new Boston. Yeah. And we'll see how that plays when we get to the non-secular element that's just as ambitious as he is, but it ain't going to play well. <laughs> no, it's not going to play well. Uh, the other thing this film does really well is when a few people die throughout this film mm-hmm. and when they die, Oh my God. It's painful, right? They just get these pipes dropped on them. Dum. Like, huge head injuries and this is what happens here in this kind of their first like his like first real drilling operation that leaves little hw uh, an orphan uh those scenes are brutal you almost have to kind of look away i mean they happen so fast but the between the sound design and just that heavy machinery you're like it's instant death i mean maybe that's the way you want to go out just have a huge pipe fall on your head but brutal it happens a couple times in this film Mm -hmm. uh so then we kind of get this this element here, and you kind of uh, set it up uh, in your last in your last discussion there. But yeah, it's all going to be about civilization with the earmark of a family business, so to speak. We're going to give you the family charm. We're going to be there. We're going to help cushion this thing. But like everyone's just like really hesitant about like, well, we don't want you drilling. And then as I love that shot when they leave, and the, like the oils like like kind of like right, isn't it like running down the street? Mm-hmm. And it's like they got like a disaster on their hands, mm-hmm. so they don't know how to, how they're going to deal with that. This savage place with very minimal safety precautions, it sets up the idea that there is a goal that Daniel Plainview is going to meet, and essentially it's money. It's not civilization. It's not to create a better metropolis in New Boston. It's power. And from the two people that die in the well to the theft over someone else's child, one of the two people that dies in the well that I mm-hmm. guess is a <laughs> hockneyed adoption, mm-hmm. and then later um, abdication of the throne later, and we get this film kind of at its conclusion. Mm -hmm. This man is set on accomplishing a goal, and all of the consequences be damned. 
it's going to happen. And that is a great moment because mm-hmm. you're like, God, that's, that's a huge mess. And he just keeps on keeping on, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. So they kind of get the a pitch that's going to, we catch up a few years later and he's pretty well established to the point where he's able to offer $10,000 up front like it's nothing. Uh, when Paul Sunday comes in and says, hey, I know you're an oil man looking for oil. I want to show you where there's some oil and I just want my cut, so to speak. Sells his family out. So this is Paul Dano, you know, and he's playing both parts here. I always forget this part, too, that he played both brothers. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially, you know, this film boils down to something we talk about a lot, which is family and the family dynamic. So the two iterations of that would be the Sunday family and this kind of religious version. They're trying to, like, start up their own church in their own psychotic way. I mean, th- that church is wild, man. I would I would get the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh but he comes and sells his family out, essentially. Just says, hey, I'm in it for the quick uh, cash grab. Uh, if you want to go, here's where it is, and I'll leave it up to you to kind of do the rest. Mm-hmm. But then that's where Daniel Plainview kind of excels. What do you think, real quick, uh, about Paul Dano in, in this film? I mean, prior to this, I think I had seen him in Little Miss Sunshine. And then, um, you know, after this, obviously, like, Prisoners, and he's going to play our Riddler in the new Batman film. He's pretty pretty great in this film. I mean, for being, I always kind of get like smarmy off of him, like yeah. almost like warmish. Uh, so maybe like the Riddler is like a great character for him to play uh, for that film. But like I always kind of get that vibe off of him. I don't know what it is. Maybe he's a really nice guy, but he just seems like such a weirdo. But he's playing this religious weirdo this time. But he's really he's really good uh, at um, when that character comes into the fold. You and I used to speak about a series called In Treatment, Mm -hmm. Gabriel Byrne. And one of the, Gabriel Byrne played a therapist in that. And the series was essentially inside the therapy room listening to these people and their terrible stories. I believe the second season introduced me to very, very young Dane DeHaan. Mm -hmm. And then that course took me to Chronicle. And then that took us to the Amazing Spider-Man suit. What I was going to say is, what I thought Dane DeHaan became is what Paul Dano currently is. Yeah. Right. That's that promise materialized and maybe because they have better agents, maybe. <laughs> better choices. Or they just make better choices. Yeah. Paul Dano's a terrific actor mm-hmm. that most people don't view as terrific. Yeah. Maybe the role as the Riddler will make him a little bit more mainstream. But one of the things that kind of like Dane DeHaan, he has working against him is he's not square-jawed, traditional, iconic, devastatingly handsome, dashing guy. He's not that. Mm -hmm. He's this guy. Mm -hmm. And so when you play it the way you do and then you cast him in the role that's in this film, man, Schmarmy's perfect, Jesse. Yeah. Because he is. He's so greasy as this preacher in this. You can't tell if it's actual oil in his hair Mm -hmm. or just his character essence that he's oozed up through the top of his head and used it to style. I love that their hair is so styled in this film. Yeah. It's so greasy on purpose. You light a match and their hair would go up in flames. Right. Uh, But his introduction uh, is is pretty good. And uh, to me, the film, this film's success really boils down between the back and forth that him and Plainview do. They're essentially playing like a chess game this whole film, both uh, verbally, mentally, and then at the end physically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm just really captivated by their body language towards each other. That's a good one. Well, 
If we decide to drill for oil, and if the well begins to produce, I'll give you a church of $5,000 signing. 10000 Do you want to find someone else that's going to come up here and drill, Eli? Make the investment and do all the hard work that goes into it? I can just as easily hunt for quail on another ranch as I can here, so... No, I'll happily be a supporter of your church for as long as I can. For the bonus only. Now, as it happens, I do have some connections in the drilling business who might help get us started. How do you feel about this, Abel? Yes, what Eli says. Well, good. Let's draw up some contracts and let's... let's give it a try. Appreciate your help with this, Eli. A <laughs> couple things I get off of that. I mean, I think Day Lewis, Daniel Plainview, wants to kill this kid, like, instantly. He just can't stand him, and he, like, tries his most restraint to just push him aside, get him away, insult him behind his back in front of his face. Uh, he just, he realizes instantly in this scene what an obstacle this swarmy bastard's going to be. And Eli in that, you, what you can't see is kind of the look he gives dad when he says, I have my own drilling equipment. And he goes, dad, you fool. Like, are you really going to sign this over to him? Like this guy's a shysta or he's just, he's a, a sideshow salesman and you're going to buy into it. So he's upset with, with, the, with his father. I mean, they set up a really great tension between these two characters really simply at just like a dinner table. The reason I think Daniel Plainview hates him so much is Eli's cagey enough to see through Plainview's little con. His here. act, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not a quail hunter. Mm -hmm. He's a oil man. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we want to get to it now, but his con is so elaborate. Let's just, I'll just do, do it. it. Yeah, do it. That his son is his son because his son's cute enough, and it's not even from his loins. I can't believe I just said that. Mm -hmm. One of his oil men in an earlier scene is killed and Plainview steals HW and makes him his own kid because he's cute enough to sell the family idea. So this vagabond quail hunter shows up on this land mm -hmm. and Eli sees right through it. Mm -hmm. And so we create a fantastic adversarial relationship right off the bat that's essentially both of these two players jockeying for position of lead dog in new boston one wants to do it through the very secular means of drilling and one very non-secular and this evangelical pentecostal nightmare <laughs> Joel, televangelist Joel <laughs> weird jimmy swagger whatever the hell that is jim jones <laughs> Kind of, you, so that's a, actually even better said. A, a little bit. Uh, I kind of get the impression that this may have happened a lot, this kind of like willing and dealing for property back then. Mm -hmm. And I don't think just people just didn't have the financial or uh, educational savvy to say no, that they were sitting on a mountain of gold, essentially, uh, that they would just willingly just give away their property to people like this. I mean, that's just kind of like the state of the world at the time. You know what I mean? We mm -hmm. weren't as like, we weren't with it. I mean, it was these guys, to their credit, they figured it out first. You know what I mean? They had the savvy to say, man, this oil, this is a business that we need to like make it. And we got to go pry on prey on these people that don't know what they have and ha don't have the sense or the education to really know what they have. It's kind of crazy, really. It really is. And that's what makes me think of it as the West, the savage version of the West, especially we're here in California too. If this was a traditional Western, like six gun shooter Western, mm -hmm. Plainview is the corrupt sheriff that refuses to let anybody come into the town. Mm -hmm. 
What happens in that scene at the dinner table is Eli offers a touch of resistance. And if you notice, because that's the end of the scene when you cut, mm-hmm. he doesn't get another word in because Plainview is such a fast talker and that amazing pantameter that is 100% Daniel Day-Lewis. And while I'm saying this, mm-hmm. because we don't usually allow ourselves to do this on the podcast, mm-hmm. if we broke the role in a lot at Daniel Plainview, this role for Daniel Day-Lewis would have made those top three Easily for me. Well, I've said, I ended last week's episode saying I think this is maybe the best performance I've ever seen in a movie ever. Uh, okay. And what's really good about it is, again, that pantameter, that yep. voice. Because when you hear, go watch an interview of him talk. He's really soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. He talks in, I, I believe it's Irish. Irish. Heavy. Heavy Irish accent. Uh, it's not this. He locked into like a character and a voice and stayed in it. And that's, you know, that whole method aspect of his acting you know what part worked the most for this time in the performance for me? In that opening bit, he kind of has a mine accident and like busts mm-hmm. his leg. That limp carries through the whole thing. And as he gets older, the limp gets heavier. Like who would think that just the body language alone in a performance would be like something to to like raise a glass to? But uh, that limp, I was just so evident in like his performance. It was, do you remember that scene too later when he, he lights the bed on fire and he has to chase his son? Like there's that moment where he goes, like just saying, I got to run and go catch my kid now. Yep. And then he like goes and does it like with the extent of, I have this leg injury. I can't do this the way I, I probably could if I didn't have it. I mean, like that's, we're getting to the layers of like this character now. Yeah, we are. But back in that moment, he's able to out-talk Eli, which is pretty impressive for an aspiring preacher, to be honest with you. And he's able to do it in a way that seems kind of folksy and almost friendly to Eli's father, to where he's able to win him over from his son in this glad-handing, back-slapping, baby-kissing, salesman way. And it's all done through this really important moment where at this time in the film, you see that one of these two, these adversaries, is clearly superior to the other. What's going to be different about this, though, is as they begin to jockey for the position of power in New Boston, if you strategize this, Eli is in a more advantageous position because as Mm -hmm. the purveyor of God's word... It's really easy to win these people over in the snake oil bit that he does compared to literally the oil oil bit that Plainview does. (laughs) Here you can come in this church and I will take the ghosts of evil and Satan from your body and dispel them from our sanctuary. Meanwhile, what Plainview offers is Mm -hmm. you can come work on this derrick with me and it's fucking hard and you might die and it's going to be really hot, but, um, and I'm a bastard. So... (laughs) You see, right now, Plainview has an advantage, but yeah. if you play this out, traditionally, Eli's going to be the one that's in the better position in the long run. Absolutely. I'm going to play two scenes back-to-back that are just going to be evident of the power dynamic that you, you just played. The first is the opening of the the Derek, mm-hmm. uh, turning it on, and Eli wanted to do a blessing. He wanted to bless, oh, so the, he wanted to yeah. bless the Derek, and Daniel's just like, I'm not going to let this little shit bless my Derek is are you insane mm-hmm. you see one man doesn't prospect from the ground it takes a whole community of good people such as yourselves and uh, this is good we stay together we pray together we work together and if the good Lord smiles kindly on our endeavor we share in the wealth together 
Now, before we spot in Mary's well, number one, named for the lovely Miss Mary Sunday here by my side, a proud daughter of these hills, I'd just like to say God bless these honest labors of ours. And of course, God bless you all. Amen. And when he says amen, he looks right at Paul Dano and just like, Middle finger. Yeah, right, exactly. There's a, probably a lot of people that haven't seen this, so will you set up why that's so important? Like, set up Dano's pitch on the prayer or the blessing. Well, he just wants to give the blessing. that You don't bring any, like, bad juju to the, kind of the town that you're essentially overtaking already, but it's... It's. I think it's just a, also a power play for Dano to say, I need some, you're taking over this town, I need to have some stake in it. I know you're promising me a church, but let me have this moment, too, this, this religious moment... Uh, for your unholy aberration, so to speak. And Plainview's just like, no way. No way in hell am I going to let you come anywhere near this thing. On the inside, though, but to the outside, he says, of course you can. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I can't w- welcome that warmly. Yeah, it's the it's the pitch man. It's the snake oil salesman saying, trying to just mend uh, mend bridges. This time through, you know what? That's the scene you just spoke about uh-huh. really reminded me of. Was the scene, back to Godfather 2, when the slum lord comes to visit young Vito after he has just killed um, Don whatever Chicho, Chicho. Mm-hmm. no Don um, in the white suit at Chicho is it Chicho okay mm-hmm. the slum lord's already told Vito before he's become a player in in this little borough in New York City uh, there's no way in the world that I'm going to give this woman a break on her rent mm-hmm. and he comes into Vito's office. And he's afraid to even sit down. Mm-hmm. But Don Corleone, Vito Corleone at that time, isn't so off-putting that he tells him, yeah, why don't you go fuck yourself? You're out of here, and mm-hmm. I'm going to kill your whole family. Mm-hmm. It's similar in the way Plainview plays this. Absolutely. Dano, as Eli, comes into whatever office they've created around this Derek establishment mm-hmm. with this pitiful plea to under the guise. Is, isn't he pitiful? The definition of that character. <laughs> yeah, schmarmy, pitiful, hateable. Especially at the end, yeah. Which is saying something because if, am I right in saying that you dislike Eli more than you dislike, he's a more hateable guy than Daniel? Yeah, I think that's fair, yeah. Because Daniel's a bastard and in this film, both, Jesse. Yeah, there's just a lot of hateable people in this thing. So he shows up with this pitiful plea to bless the well so that God's grace will provide bounty, blah, 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 whatever crap that is. Mm-hmm. And Daniel says, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea and handles it like a champ because he is still, even in that, so superior. You can see Eli, he's a false prophet. He's going to admit that later. Oh, yeah, I got a clip of that. <laughs> but he's trying desperately to wrestle the power from New Boston away from the man who's going to be the economic lifeblood or lifeline or oil line yeah. in a secular way. Like even when it's the discussion about building the road. Mm-hmm. We're going to bake this, Derek, and I'm going to have money, and we're going to we're going to create civilization. And Eli asks, "Will the first stop on the road be the church?" Like this battle, this this mono a mono battle. But the problem for Eli is he is so undermanned. Yeah, you show up with this pitiful. Can I please give the blessing and just get your ass handed to you? Immediately following that, mm-hmm. because Plainview is so your superior. Yeah. Now, Eli's going to have a couple moments where he starts to wrestle some of it back until he gets bitch slapped in a puddle of oil. Yeah. I have that too. (laughs) But I don't even know what we're talking about now insofar as the question you might have posed other than this is a big moment because you're seeing Daniel, again, 
taking Eli to well, task. Well, let's juxtapose this moment because here we see Daniel in his el- in his environment on the the Derek in his where he's comfortable, confident, and where he commands the scene. And Eli's so pitiful. Mm-hmm. But then if we flip the scenes and we go into the church, it's the opposite. And Daniel's like, what the hell is this? And you, you get mm. something like this. You will be cast up and thrown in the dirt and thrust back to the partition. And as long as I have teeth, I will bite you. And if I have no teeth, I will come you. Oh, I'm getting and out of there too. Yeah. As I have fish, I will bash you now. Get out of here. Can we give it to Paul Dano for that? That's an amazing scene. Well, he essentially just performed an exorcist sans pea soup. And the the, the end capper to that scene is kind of just a close-up of Plainview going like, what a poor crock of shit. Oh, God, like, this guy's here. I'm going to have to deal with this. Like, it's just like, it's always just this look of disdain. Like, this is a thing I have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And they both play off of it so well. Yeah, Paul Dano's, uh, I mean, I can't believe he wasn't even probably nominated for this this film. I don't think he was. Shocking, huh? Shocking, yeah, ex- exactly. Let's talk about the moment you talked about earlier. So that we got this thing set up. It starts doing its thing. And then, boom. The, the oil shows up. But a lot of crazy things like happen here. The most probably uh, prolific one is HW's blown off of the derelict, essentially, and instantly goes deaf. Uh, but then uh, I kind of thought about Sorcerer a little bit because this thing lights on fire, and I was like, oh, the only way to stop that is to blow it up with dynamite, and they have that scene later. But, man, poor HW, man. He's dealt kind of a shit hand in this film. I mean... I had to kind of think, I mean, to, to have your hearing and then to lose it just so suddenly and your father, is, your father, in quotes, to not understand. He just wants him, get out of it, boy, snap out of it. You talk with your words, boy. And what was that weird scene in his, like, rehab scene when he pours, like, whiskey in his milk? Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Like, that was weird. I was like, that probably tasted terrible. Touch of milk with a whole gallon of whiskey? Yeah, he he just thinks his son's acting weird. Not that he just, like, completely lost his hearing and can't hear anything or any anybody. Um, I feel bad for little HW. And, and then essentially like the solution for Plainview is like, well, I can't deal with you right now. I'm trying to run this oil business and this derelict. And now we're business is booming. Everybody. Um, I can't coach you and teach you and help you. So he essentially sends him off to uh reform rehab school to go learn sign language. I mean, Oh my God. I mean, is there like- maybe, or maybe he just sends him off to wherever the hell that train ends up. Yeah. I feel like he went to school because the sign language interpreter comes, comes back with comes him. back with him. So he was at least learning some skills. But what do you think? What do you just talk about HW and just kind of his whole role in this thing? The reason that Plainview has HW as a son we are to talk about is because he's been kidnapped and he was a cute enough face to sell the family man Plainview great father. It's not just some shyster oil salesman coming to buy your land. It's me and my son. It's this prospector who believes in God and family and growth and all these other things. Mm -hmm. It's a total ploy though. However, one of the things that does happen, and I think this shows it, we talk about big moments for our bad guys. We want to give them some trait that's admirable. A couple things happen when they strike it at this Derek. It's explosive because they have struck it rich. Plainview uses the expression, it's going to blow gold. It's going to blow Fort Knox. That's how rich 
There's a whole this, ocean of oil underneath the thing. Well, that's good, Jesse. <laughs> Sounds like him. Um, they have found the mother load. Oh yeah, it it destroys the Derek because it is so rife with pressure. Okay, so we know that he's hit it. Now this is important because for plain view, by any means necessary, insofar as mining this oil and all of the other things are just pawns on the chessboard to checkmate. Boom, the Derek blows, and his son is the one that takes the most immediate damage with that. He's blown off a ledge somewhere on a higher part of the Derek, crashes onto the roof of the office building, I guess, but goes deaf. Mm -hmm. Plainview shows up, his men in tow, and they- Kieran Hines. (laughs) What a great performance by him, too, huh? Yeah, I, did, I didn't notice him without his Steppenwolf costume. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> right. So they do what they can to, they knock those stakes out of the ground, and they mitigate the damage that the Derek is going to take, which doesn't make sense because it's going to come down around itself to where there's nothing. But before any of that happens, what Plainview does is grab HW and run him to safety. Mm-hmm. And once he's safe, then he has one of his men basically pin him down to wherever he is because he's got to go deal with the rig. There's so much at play here. The ground is ripe. He's finally struck it. New Boston is on the road to financial boomtown, literally boomtown. His son is collateral damage, and I love him enough to make sure he's okay, but I don't love him enough to find him a real doctor. And then what you said there. They struggle back and forth with the lack of communication, and Plainview has no capable means of medicating or dealing with anything that his son can do in this, this state of, of unspokenness. He's deaf. Mm -hmm. So he literally puts him on a train says, hang on, I got to go get something leaves him on the train as it takes off and bails a kid. Who's deaf. Who's eight, nine, 10, 11. I don't know. Sub 15, nine. Okay. Nine ish is on a train with no ability to communicate to God only knows where, because dad can't be bothered because you know what H- HW doesn't offer anymore? Mm-hmm. The cuteness, yeah. You got it. Yeah, now but, he's a burden. Yeah. The one regret I kind of have in that particular sequence where the film would just reach like greatness. Oh, it's already a good movie, but like greatness potential is Plainview leaves the train and we kind of follow him for a little bit, but then we cut back to inside the train and HW's like, oh, we're, we're leaving. And then Kieran Hines is like holds him back. I wish the camera had just stuck with Day-Lewis. Yeah. Because what he essentially does with that camera angle shows is him just turning his back on his son. And as he goes back to his car, as his son's like, Dad, don't leave me, kind of a thing. Uh, a very pivotal moment in this in this movie. Because it's weird because every all the evidence that you just stated probably alludes to the fact that he's never cared for this boy ever. But there's moments where I'm like, I think he kind of cares for his son at, at, at points. His son, in quotes. It's weird, right? Because... Is he rescuing him from the top of that building after the Derek exploded because he needs the foil there for the belief that I'm a family man? I think you're right, yeah. Or is it I actually genuinely care about this kid? I don't know. And maybe that's the gray area the film gives us to say maybe. Let me ask you another question. Okay. As we move through the story with Plainview, he becomes a worse character as the movie progresses Mm -hmm. and he gets more powerful. If he steals the kid initially... He's stealing the kid, not because he wants to be burdened with a baby on an oil-rigging Derek life. That's a nightmare. But because he sees the economic potential that that kid offers. As the story progresses and Plainview's character erodes and becomes more hateable, 
it's logical to for me deduce that if he stole him in a state of complete debauchery for economic gain, I don't think as his character moral compass goes more south, he's going to grow to love that kid more, right? It's I don't necessarily know now that you've kind of stated all that evidence about, I was like, I don't, I don't know if he likes his kid anymore. You know what might solidify it is the end sequence when... Mm-hmm. Older H.W. goes to visit dad, and then when he leaves the estate, they cut back to a scene of younger H.W., and he's playing, and Daniel's like, get the hell off of me, so to speak. So maybe that's kind of the last evidence of saying he never really cared about him. In that scene where they're playing, Mm -hmm. that flashback that you're talking about, do you detect a note of affection between Daniel and the son mm, at all? Mm, mm, really? You think it's like, get really animosity. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, burdenous. And I, I didn't come to that conclusion literally until just now. <laughs> okay. So what you just said, we're so. going to get to it, but plain view and his son eventually become part of this estranged relationship because his son wants to go drill. And so now he's competition to dad, mm-hmm. dad in quotes, dad thief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We get a flashback moment as the son's leaving, which is about this age of HW, mm-hmm. prior to going deaf, teasing dad with the hat. And the Plainview character himself is so mm, measured where he needs to be. It's hard for, because I'm with you, it's hard to tell if that's his only way of returning some affection in this teasing manner between older and younger dad's son. Or is he like, kid, beat it, because I got work to do. That's interesting. That's the, that's the impression I, it, yeah. I, I got sure. this time. I think that's yeah. there. Okay, so can I throw one more thing? Yeah. When they go to the restaurant, mm-hmm. okay, so HW is going to come back, everybody. Yeah. And he's mostly going to come back because people in the community are like, what happened to your son? And well, they're, they're giving a hard time about it. Taking on water. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. where'd your son go? So unfortunately, he brings it back, and they have that great bit where the son like tries to beat the crap out of him, smacks him, and punches mm-hmm. him in the stomach. And Daniel Day Lewis just takes it like a champ. Well, he takes a lot of slaps. Paul Dano too. Yes, we'll get to that. I think in a minute, right? Yeah. And then once they like, son comes back and bites dad, and he's pissed. They go to a really nice restaurant, and man, there's a few moments in there where I kind of think Daniel yeah, actually no. cares yes, about his yeah, kid. I feel the same way. Yeah. <sighs> so I I don't know where we're at now. Yeah, it's a roller coaster. And maybe it's meant to be that. Yeah, maybe. Can we talk about a part of the film that necessarily doesn't work too well for me? Again, this is a movie what? this is a movie that I really like, sure. but uh I think kind of at the end of the day where kind of it it kind of falters a little bit for me. I think it's a little too long. Maybe 20 ish minutes too long 240 yeah and runtime I yeah think. It's, a, it's, it's a bit lengthy i mean sure. for viewing i had to it was a couple days to watch this movie i'll be honest yeah uh you don't have that luxury in the theater you just got to sit and take it i mean and then I, I i i loved it for sure when it when it was released but this whole kind of ploy from faux brother that shows up um i think there's some good stuff there i mean it kind of shows uh Daniel's prominence as an oil salesman to want to come cash in on that. But I feel for the most part for me, this kind of just kind of like takes up a lot of the runtime of trying to establish Daniel as both evil, but then people trying to like milk off of his success. We're kind of established Eli's going to do that in the end sequence. It's fair. Uh, But I think if you wanted something to trim it, it could have probably been this sequence, but it does set up a lot for the rest of the movie. But what's your kind of impressions of this whole thing? I agree with what you said. I like it. Mm -hmm. 
But I don't think the relationship that he has with the brother who actually is just some other grifter that's learned that Plainview might be gettable because he's wealthy. Mm -hmm. You could say it's foreshadowing what happens in the bowling alley at the end, maybe. But I don't think we need more reassuredness, especially after the conversation you have just had now about HW. Yeah. We need to be apprised or alerted to the loneliness maybe that Plainview suffers from, but also the venomous like revenge and gosh, angular direction that he will go that no one's going to dissuade him from. And if you do, it's curtains. Mm -hmm. I think we do that through HW and basically just his dealings with Eli. So you're right. I like that, Mm -hmm. but it's 20 minutes of a film that's already establishing what we know about plain view anyway. I'm with you. You know, a moment I do like though, cause it does remind me of the Godfather. Do you remember the great moment in Godfather part two, when they go to that like weird, like belly dancing club yeah. in the basement. And it's the moment when Michael realized, fuck it was Fredo that set up that hit at Lake Tahoe. It's not really a belly dancing club, but we can go with that. It's a total sex show. Okay. <laughs> it's a total sex show. We we'll call that belly dancing awesome. But was, yeah, there, no. was there a goat off to the side? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> but it's that moment in this film where yeah. they're on the beach and he like is asking him some questions about this dance. Or you take a girl to this, this dance and he's like, and he has to say it a second time. And he's like, and he answers just so kind of nonchalantly. And Daniel's just like, this son of a bitch isn't who he says he is. And he goes back into the water and that look on his face is just like, I got to deal with this now. Like I love those moments, those moments. Oh, it is. You're right. That is the Johnny Ola bit from, Mm -hmm. Oh, you're absolutely right. I love those moments when characters realize, uh, cause HW already knew it. That's why he tried to light him on fire in that room. And he didn't do a good job at it. Uh, but I like moments when characters realize they're onto it but the character doesn't know that they're onto it yet. Cause then we get to see the reaction. We get to see Michael's reaction in, in part two that we get that great moment where he kisses Fredo mm-hmm. and he's like, I knew it was you. And this one, we kind of get that sleeping bag confrontation. And like, he's just like, I got to do away with this guy. He's competition. Now this whole thing's competition. He's a very competitive individual. I love what you said about HW right there. Cause I had a different take on that, but I like yours a lot. Okay. I thought it was just HW's just, just blatant jealousy that he's taken this really? guy's okay. attention. I like where you're at though. The innocence and the mute innocent trying to stick up for dad by burning the competitor who's worked his way into the the family structure and mm-hmm. shouldn't be there. Yeah. That's pretty good, Jesse. Yeah. Well, was, again, either way that works, but I'm going to go ahead and sidle up to your idea okay. there. That's great. So what Jesse's talking about is right before HW gets on the train. Yeah, he sets their house on fire. Mhm. And it almost burns down is that guy's name, Richard. I don't even remember what his name is. The pretend brother. I just know he's, he's Benny from the mummy movie. <laughs> this guy. Yeah, exactly. This guy shows up and claims to be plain views brother from another mother, direct quote. And the uh, first time it was ever used in history. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so we have a family member that's with a half brother. If HW sees through that, then that makes the decision to send HV away all the more troubling. Mm-hmm. And if, Man, if Plainview Daniel doesn't come to that realization till the beach and HW has had it this whole time and been unable to communicate it. I think, yeah, I think that's... Oh, that's re- you might be right, man. Yeah. That's pretty good, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does away with him 
but then I guess doesn't do a good job of disposing the body because Bandy, this other guy from the town that has super drinking the Kool-Aid, the Eli Sunday Kool-Aid was like, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody about what you just did if you go repent your sins with God. The burying of his fake brother that was loaded too, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. he digs the grave, and what's the base of that grave? Mm. Fucking oil. Mm-hmm. He bit. He digs the, the, they are in such a fertile environment for oil. It's that, everywhere, yeah. That this shallow grave that he makes for his pretend brother is saturated at the bottom with a river of oil. That is so yeah. loaded, Big man. Time, yeah. Just loaded imagery. You think it's a pretty good shot film? Oh, beautiful. Well, it won the Oscar for cinematography. It, sure. It looks great. Yeah. Uh, now, talking about Oscars, I mean, Put whatever weight on them you want. Like, I I tend to not. You know what I mean? Like, they're just something you put on a mantelpiece. And I love hearing stories about people and they keep them in their bathroom. (laughs) Like, like paperweight tells you what you think of them. But if there was ever a scene or a sequence where an actor just outright won the award, it's this sequence Mm. right here. You've lusted after women and you have abandoned your child. Your child that you raised, you have abandoned all because he was sick and you have sinned. So say it now. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Say it louder. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. Louder, Daniel. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I am sorry, Lord. I am sorry, Lord. I want the blood. I want the blood. You have abandoned your child. I've abandoned my child. I will never backslide. I will never backslide. I was lost, but now I am found. I was lost, but now I'm found. I have abandoned my child. Say it. Say it. I've abandoned my child. Say it louder. Say it louder. I've abandoned my child. Mm. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. Who begged for the blood. Give me the blood, Eli. Let me get out of here. Give me the blood, Lord, and let me get away. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. Get out of here, devil! Out, devil! Out, sin! Do you accept Jesus Christ? They gotta be real smacks, too. Jesus Christ as your savior. Yes, I do. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the It's a strange moment. He just has been rebaptized. And then does like a dog like got bathed like but something also nondescript happens in the scene. I don't know if you noticed it, but I'm going to ask you, and then I'll give my answer. So powerhouse, oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the acting is, that's acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he got all the awards that year, rightly so. After his baptismal, uh, he gets up and everyone's congratulating him. He first goes to Eli, mm-hmm. shakes his hand, and they have an exchange of words. We don't hear what it is. What does he tell him? I'm going to make you fucking pay. Yeah, I think it is something like, I got you, you bastard. Like, like this is what you've always wanted, but now I have the upper hand. Something like that. Um, 
interesting that Ed, PTA decided to kind of do it that way. I mean, that seems like an important moment to do a close up of them saying, hey, "I got you, a little bastard," or something like something like that. But no, we it's not left to, to for us to hear. But this, I think I think we get it though. Sure. Yeah. And everything that happens in this scene is going to re, be repaid in spades to Eli. Mm-hmm. So, for the moment, Eli is taken at least in the eyes of the public, a more advantageous position. If he is so full of God's grace and love that he can forgive this ambitious oil tycoon for abandoning his deaf son and then get the entire community behind him, he is, at this point, this is the quintessential moment of power for Eli in this movie. Puts Daniel up on stage, berates him, humiliates him, makes him confess to these things. But things are going to turn because HW is coming back pretty soon mm-hmm. and people will forget about the sin. And this is the mistake. This is the difference between Eli's debauchery and Daniel's debauchery. Mm-hmm. Eli's debauchery and the maintaining of power that is enabled through it is based on forgiveness. As a non-secular prophet, God's message through Eli is some version of forgiveness or cleansing. Daniel's is not. Mm -hmm. Daniel doesn't ever forget. Daniel remembers and holds a grudge and bears ill will and hardens that blade on that ax that he's going to swing so heavily Mm -hmm. when the time presents itself. And that creates an ending that is inevitable. Oh, yeah. Eli, to maintain power, and you're going to see it when we get to the final scene, back to the begging I'm asking for forgiveness and salvation that Eli has erected this mantle of power for himself and gladly placed himself on. And this scene is crucifying Daniel on Mm -hmm. is made of glass. Daniel's is made out of oil, Mm -hmm. right? So I love that in this moment, this is him taking back control of new Boston or little Boston. Is it new Boston? New Boston. Taking control of New Boston. What a great name for a town. No kidding. (laughs) But it's done through the forgiveness of the villain who has the most ill will to bear. And to forgive him then only is going to create a larger river of contempt in that bad guy. This scene is, and it's just masterfully acted. Oh, yeah. Acted shots. Those are real smacks, Jesse. Oh, absolutely. He's smacking the shit out of him. If Daniel Day-Lewis is going full method in every aspect, why not go this far as well? I I would probably say, like, no, dude, like, Dano, give me some slaps, man. Yeah. Uh, I I can do nothing but call Daniel Day-Lewis but a villain in this film. Mm -hmm. Where does he rank on your list of great film villains top three i mean and it's mostly from i mean like talk about his stakes being not having to destroy the world to rule over rubble but literally to just mine this little californian town of all their plentiful resources and he's gonna just be a shyster the entire time while he's doing it for what end goal money to have a nice mansion and die in it all by yourself with a bowling alley and then you kind of get you get those like consumerist vibes off of Daniel too. Like you kind of see the inklings of like Walmart Junior from Daniel Plainview. This ability to go from town to town and just dry them out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well said. Uh, Literally their business model. Exactly. So, is, do you have anything else you want to say uh, before we jump to 1927 about you know anything uh, in in this in this era any sequence or anything? Well, do we want to talk about the scene when Plainview beats the hell out of Eli? Sure, why not? He puts him in the puddle of oil. Do you have the sound? 
When do we get our money, Daniel? <gasps> Aren't you a healer? An vessel for the Holy Spirit? When are you coming over and make my son here again? Can't you do that? Let me bless the world is happening. Daniel, you shouldn't have done that. Daniel. Oh, you owe the church of the third revelation five thousand dollars. Oh, what the stuff we made? Oh, oh, oh. There's that pitiful bit. I love that the church is called the third church of the third, third revelation. Oh my god, that sounds so culty. Yep. Oh man. Sorry to all our Christian listeners out there, but I'm just going to say like you wouldn't be going to this church. I don't know, maybe Eli Sunday's letting letting the people come into his church uh, during the middle of a category 5 hurricane. Mm. Boom, Joel mm, Osteen. Joel Osteen. <laughs> yep. Uh but yeah, this is a big moment. I think this is something that Daniel Plainview has wanted to do since that first tabletop sequence uh and it, again we're playing it's a jockeying it's like this one i think it's like a chess game almost it's it's like who's got like who's making the better move in this scene and it's daniel i mean he's just like just re-put you so man this is what we're doing and then like yeah what does that mean like putting the oil all over this guy's face eli shows up and asks for the money that should be given to the church on the mining of oil from um daniel's derrick's and you know, see, this goes back to that really complex relationship with him and his son. Mm-hmm. He utters in there, where were you? You're the healer. Where were you when my son was sick and injured? Why didn't you come to my house and heal my son? Mm-hmm. And from that moment, he beats him up. He drags him to, it's almost like a little kiddie pool of oil. Maybe it's just some leakage from where they've drilled or spillage or something. And he puts him face down or back down in there and smacks him and mounts him and smears oil all over his face it's and like then a, smacks him again. It's like a big brother going, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. Oh, it's exactly <laughs> like that. You're right, it is. <laughs> and by the time it's finished, Eli in a bloody oily mess is left with no other recourse but to just take it. All fours waddle away, mm-hmm. crawl away. Wimpish. It's weird though because again it's back to that HW thing. I don't yeah again I don't know. Like if there's parts of me that think yeah he cares but then there's parts that you sold it so well that he's just there as a marketing ploy. It we it, we write a book on that. It, it's so <laughs> counterintuitive to to bring him on as a marketing ploy and then watch what happens to Daniel's character by the end of the film and somewhere in there find any logical belief that as he became more evil and more driven by power and oil and money, he came to love his son more. Well, it's possible. Well, it's possible. Almost, and we've created a couple moments, I think, where there's some evidence like maybe that's the case, and that's a big maybe. Well, you kind of went the one way at the beginning of the film when he took him as a marketing ploy, and I kind of thought he kind of just took in that boy as your dad just got killed, and I'm going to kind of watch out yeah. after you. So I, I don't know. I mean, the film is playing with our mind and like which way we need to go. But we, we're, we're coming to the same conclusion here in 1927. So, Matt, timeline-wise, this is right before the stock market crash, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever plentiful bounties that Daniel has are about to go into the toilet here in about a few short months, right? Yeah, right. So, And maybe that's, that's kind of how I've always interpreted the final line of the film. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm finished. Yeah, yeah. is he's finished because he just murdered a man, but he's finished... Uh, murdering the man as a verb 
but I'm also finished financially because this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's a mm-hmm. interpret it that whichever way. But this scene between adult HW and Daniel's brutal. Oh, I almost want to fast forward this scene just because I don't like scenes when people just bear ultimate sins to alleged loved ones. And when he kind of reveals the truth, you're nothing but a, you were nothing but an over. You're just a bastard in a basket to his son. Oh my God. And it, it, not even like the son can't even hear him because the son's not reading lips efficiently. It's going in through the interpreter and then to HW. What do you think of this sequence? I mean, if animosities and truths weren't revealed in this scene, I don't, I don't know what else could be revealed, but this is just Daniel saying, I'm done with you, HW. And I know you're done with me. So you go on your merry little path, but before you leave, I'm going to tell you the truth. And it's such an asshole move by Daniel. The other thing we haven't mentioned about Daniel is how hard drinking he is through this whole film. There's scenes where we cut to him and he's just fell asleep on like the floor passed out in his shack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's got a flask whiskey in the milk whiskey. I love the scene at the diner when they're going to have steaks there on HW's return. Mm -hmm. And he goes and gives the standard oil guys a piece of his mind. And he takes, he drinks their whiskey Mm -hmm. and then goes back to his table. So this guy is just like a belligerent drunk. Blackout, right? Mm -hmm. So in the conversation that he has with HW, two things come up. Number one is HW has gotten married. Now we've seen that on camera and somehow Daniel has come to that knowledge. But the biggest issue is not the marriage. It's that he didn't approve it and he didn't give his son the green light to go ahead and go with it. And this is plain view's whole deal. Like he didn't this even is, go. He didn't even go. Right. Yeah. You can do what you want to do, but two things will never happen. It has to be with my approval and you better never be competitive with me. And he's stated that several times. After HW returns now as a married man, he says, I'm going to go to Mexico with my wife, Mary, I believe her name is. Mary Sunday. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And we're going to start drilling in Mexico for oil. And the plain view doesn't say good luck or I've taught you well. He says, so now you're my direct competitor. Mm-hmm. And then we go down this road of you were just the bastard in the basket. And at this moment, this adds another layer to what plain view's true motives with HWR consist of. He says to him, I took you because you were a cute face and that made this whole shtick that I'm trying to sell all the more believable. And you have never been my son. You were just, you're lower than a bastard. You're lower than an orphan. You were an economic ploy to be able to sit in this house. You were a means, you were a brick on my gold, blow gold, yellow brick roll Mm -hmm. road. It's hard to hear. And the question I want to ask you, he's pretty drunk at this point. Yeah. He's obviously pissed off. In his Xanadu mansion? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With a bowling alley in 1929. Well, Seven. He, he's literally shooting bullets at like... A homemade apparatus that looks like the artifacts in Xanadu. In his hallway in his mansion. At Rosebud. This is how bored he is. Yeah. So, is he just saying that to HW that you were just a cute face that I needed because he's that pissed off in the moment? Or is he saying that to HW? Because if you're going to leave and blow this up, then I'm going to do whatever I need to do to break down my competitor, to limit the competition so I can still win. What is it for you? 
Well, because we've established Plainview as such a formidable antagonist and I think pretty evil when we get down to it, I got to go both. He's going to not only break down his competitor because I'm going to squash whatever dreams and pipelines you're going to do, but I'm also going to ruin whatever good nature and goodwill was here in this present relationship. And that's that's evil. evil. I mean, that's not like, I mean, when we when I say evil, I think we naturally think like supernatural and like ghosts and demons and things like that. Like this is the root of humanity's evil, which is it's money. It's greed. It's all that, it, that that's mattered to Plainview up to this point. So I got to go both. It's fair. Yeah. I don't know if that gives us any clear indication on where the relationship is between no, him no. and HW, but that's the fun thing to explore in the film. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I've often heard when I've spoken to people about this film is yeah. they say it's boring. Mm-hmm. And what we're into right now is a whole lot of character study. And I think fairly, maybe not justly, but fairly so it's too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're two forty in, I think we both agree the stuff with the pretend brother maybe is a little bit overkill and more for you me than me, but mm-hmm. it's a fair point. Um, you know, if you don't want to ponder that, then, and I don't really know other than it's kind of cool to maybe watch a Derek being built, like what's going to really work in this film. I know. Yeah. It is kind of a hard recommendation for people. It is. Uh, because it is, it's a lot more talky. It's a lot more cerebral. It's more character driven. It's not action-packed, so to speak, so you have to be willing to commit to these slower moments. But in the slower moments... He's fantastic. There's amazing things happening, both acting and like story-wise. I mean, like these character things are all happening through dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, heartbreaking. I mean, him leaving... Bastard in a... You're nothing but a bastard in a basket. I mean, oh, God. And he can't even hear it. That's what's even worse about it. Yeah, it's plain you just like speaking out of his own orifice just to be heard. Brutal. But then we get... Okay, we get to the final scene. This is just like the movie ends on a powder keg here. So Daniel, belligerently drunk, wakes up on from a blackout in his bowling alley. I just like... Significant... Any particular significance for bowling alley? I love it. I mean, it looks great. The opulence of where he has ascended to. He is this blister of opulence in an oil field in New Boston. He has this mansion. And like you said, the date's important because it's 27. So you're... It's all uh, it's all about to go to hell. 18 months away mm-hmm. from all hell breaking mm-hmm. loose. The other thing too, when he says, I'm finished at the end of the film. The other part of that, I'm finished, is I've ascended the mountain and I have finally undone my there's that's a loaded line five five different ways you could go with that so for those of you that haven't seen it he wakes up in the lane line in the bowling oil grease blackout drunk with eli paying him a visit and two-day-old food on a plate next to him it's that's like a steak jerky jerky steak it's so old <laughs> that he eats like jerky too now this is something i i kind of always forget as well is saying something about a movie that i really like and i forget elements but then it's great revisiting them so you get familiar with them again is mm-hmm. i always forgot that eli comes to him essentially begging for money yep uh again that wimpish quality that paul dano you know brings so brings you know just so great to the screen but he's like he's essentially doing what his brother did Here's another piece of land. If you come drill for it, I want. Uh, he, he didn't even want. He wants a hundred thousand. Did I hear that right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he wants a substantial amount up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in order to do that, Daniel wants him to do this first. Just imagine this is your church here, and uh, you have a full congregation. So 
I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Say it again. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. I can't hear you at the back. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Say it again. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Say it again. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. Those areas have been drilled. <clears throat> Those areas have been drilled. Echoing the scene where he says, say you have been in your child as loud as you possibly can say it. Here, you got to like, essentially renounce your religion and talk about all this religion as superstitious mumbo jumbo, uh, only to give him. Oh yeah. I already, oh, I already, already sucked it dry from your milkshake. Yes. I already took up all that oil. Oh gosh. Like, and then the, just like Eli almost goes like pale white and plain views eating his jerky from his plate. Who imagines what bacteria is on that steak <laughs> at this point? <laughs> And, oh, gosh, it's just, again, this who has the upper hand in this particular relationship until it eventually just blows up. Where were you when Paul was suckling at his mother's teeth? Where were you? Who was nursing you, poor Eli? One of bandest sounds. That land has been had. Nothing you can do about it. It's gone. It's had. If you would just you take this lease, Daniel. Drainage. Drainage, Eli. Mm. Drain dry. I'm so sorry. If, if you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw, there it is. That's a straw, you see. Watch it. My straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. Mm. I drink it up. Don't bully me, Daniel. It's so good. I mean, like, I don't know how full method Daniel did, but this sounds like a drunk man, mm -hmm. like a belligerent drunk man going on like a drunk rant about this crazy drunk thing. And he's just like letting this guy have it. And he waddles all the way, you know, to the thing. And then... This is it. I mean, plain you just like I'm just, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kill you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm just gonna kill you because I'm so far mad. What do you think of this final just sequence? This bowling thing, the shot I always like. I like that shot. He throws a bowling ball. It hits a bucket of water, and the like the water gets on the camera. But like you just stick with it because Day Lewis is just he's like so like in tune to something chaotic, and Paul Thomas Anderson just sticks with it. Look, Eli shows up asking for forgiveness and reconciliation which is the crux of what gave him his power. Now that his financial dreams have dried up and his career in radio has gone south and he has nothing left because his congregation has fled and he has no power, he has no choice except to try and sell one little swatch of land that he's naive enough to think that Daniel hasn't already sucked dry. And the best part about that is... The initial pitch, I think, is $100,000 and then some royalty fee going forward. And, and Plainview says, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's pretty standard. Yes, yes, yes. But before we do this, I need you to do me one thing. Oh my yes. Admit you're a false prophet and that God is a superstition. <sighs> and that's the bit that Jesse played where yeah. they're playing out this role where 
Eli is admitting to his congregation that he's a snake oil salesman, not a real oil salesman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so goes through all that, humiliates him again, the same way that Daniel was humiliated in front of Eli's congregation and the other sound you played. And then all we're missing from the turnabout is fair play is the violence or the smacking, but it's coming oh, just yeah. in a little bit of a different way. Yeah. The, the difference in this smacking is it's smacking by way of bowling pins. <laughs> so I made a comment when I was watching this and I said, there are four scenes in film that when I think about shocking moments always come through mm. or big moments, my favorite moments, if you will, I've told you a million times, the picnic scene in the hustlers one, mm-hmm. our scene in hereditary, the decapitation scene in hereditary is one. Red finding Andy's letter and Shawshank is number three. Mm -hmm. This one's number four. Nice. Is this bowling alley scene? This is a big hot take question for you. Yeah. Is this the best scene in film since 2000? Mm. Is it in consideration? It has to be. It's hard to just right now cold answer that question, but we should do that for a flight. One of these days, like a top three of that be a, so what everything that the films build up of greed, money, false prophets, nonprofits, snake oil, so like false prophets and nonprofits. Yeah. Jesse, uh, the film deserves this type of ending. It could only end this way. And the fact that, you know, we've always, we haven't seen Dan. Well, we, yes, we have, we've seen Daniel shoot a guy in the face. Uh, we know what he's capable of. And when you push him too far and in that instance, his brother, brother in quotes, uh, pushed him too far. Now we finally see that Eli, like I was just like, man, Eli, why would you go back to Daniel after like, you know what you guys have gone through? What did you expect mm-hmm. from this person? Did you expect him to change? Uh, I think it's kind of just desserts for both characters. Really asking for mercy from yeah. that man. Yeah. Good God. Especially when he's this far gone. I mean, he's in worse shape than he was when he was in new Boston. And Eli doesn't know that he's just lost the one remaining piece or semblance of humbleness or compassion with his with HW leaving. Mm-hmm. At this point, I think I'm probably okay saying that he loves him and hates him equally, HW. Yeah. But the reason that he's blackout, pissed, drunk in the bowling lane is because of the fight that he just had with HW. Like he drinks every day, but to fall asleep in your mansion, this is so. Xanadu knocking over the crates oh, in <laughs> Citizen Kane. This is his this room is destruction that, scene. This is oh, that yeah, moment. That seems great. This is that moment. It is. You're right. And you know, Eli doesn't know exactly what he's walking in upon, but man, he sure picks a bad day to ask a for ba- this a favor. bad day to do it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so Eli gets killed by bowling pin. Death by bowling by bowling pin is a good, not a good way to go out. Hopefully, that first one did it. But I don't think it did. <laughs> well, he throws a couple bowling balls at him, and Eli can't dodge the bowling ball properly because he's stuck in the middle of a bowling lane with oil. So one clips his ankle, and Plainview's just pitching bowling ball after bowling ball, and then he runs down the lane and grabs a bowling pin, and they start playing dodgeball. And then he hits him, and Eli starts to, on all fours, yeah. which is just like how he call, crawled out of that oil pit earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. Plainview shows up and cracks him right on the spine. Mm-hmm. It breaks his spine probably. Yeah. So now he's laid out. Crushed his skull in, yeah. And then two more blows to smash his skull to oblivion. And then he sits down with his plate of food 
I'm fin- votes left. I'm finished. And the butler comes in and he says, I'm finished, and out we go. Yep. And then that loaded as well as we've established what that means. Finished financially, finished because I killed the guy, finished. I'm finished for the day, finished for whatever reason you kind of want to talk about. I have an interesting question to ask you, and then I and then I have some just facts to talk about with this film. Okay. Uh as an if you were like an actor just in a movie, do you feel like because Day Lewis goes there's the stories, you know, everyone's heard them. He goes full method. He stays in character. When he's Bill the Butcher, he goes and works in a butcher shop and he cobbles shoes in the meantime. I mean, Day Lewis is like, I think, one of those actors that's just like fully committed to the craft and all the respect to that. Movies mean to him more than like what most people, it's not a paycheck for him. He truly enjoys acting. As an actor, do you, would you feed off of, if you were in this film, would you kind of just like, if you were Eli Sunday or Kieran Hines, wouldn't you kind of feed off of that energy that this guy's so into this character? He's not breaking it and he's doing crazy things. It would almost kind of make force you to like be better. And if I was an actor, I would I would almost love to be in a movie with Daniel Day-Lewis because he would almost bring out the best in everybody. Uh and you kind of say that about like athletes sometimes. But uh with Day-Lewis, that might be intimidating for some people, but I would welcome that. I mean, that would I think just like make aspire you to be better. You brought up a question about Paul Dano earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think that Paul Dano is able to stand and trade acting blows with him in this is important. Mm -hmm. It would be really easy to get caught up in the wash, the power of Daniel Plainview portrayed by, I think the greatest actor currently around Daniel day Lewis. Mm -hmm. And he's able to, to stand there and not get so washed away that he becomes forgotten. Yeah. And consider this also Mm -hmm. that he does it through pitifulness. He doesn't stand up and try to outman him. He's, he takes the opposite approach. Okay. So that's the first question or that's the first answer that I would have. The second part of that is if he doesn't leave Daniel Plainview's character for six weeks on set, it also might make it a little easier because you might be so sick mm-hmm. and tired of his bullshit mm-hmm. that you can't wait to get in that scene. And like, maybe you're not really acting anymore. Yeah. Maybe the F you that is the scene and the conflict dialogue in that scene comes from a place of like, legit, Absol- like I fucking hate this guy. Absolutely. Cause there's times where you hear, you brought up the sports metaphor. Mm-hmm. Ask Kyrie Irving what he thinks about LeBron James. He hates him. <laughs> For good reason. Yeah. Right? Those guys don't get along. I know. People said the same thing about Kobe. Mm-hmm. There's lots of players. Yeah. Like, ask the Green Bay Packers how oh. they feel about Aaron <laughs> Rodgers today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Poor fans. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, I think it's a very appropriate metaphor. And I guess my answer is, would it be easy? No, I don't think it would be easy. I think would you be, like would you like the opportunity? Yes. The challenge. Yeah. As long as okay, yeah. so here's the other thing too. Yeah. Maybe Paul Dano's agent deserves a toast in this <laughs> because the opposite, Daniel Day Lewis in this, has to be written in a way to where any actor who's capable or agent who's capable of seeing what potential is doesn't look at this and go, Yeah, man, you don't want to be in this role because it is Daniel Day-Lewis, and you're the Sherpa that he's going to go to the Academy Awards on. Maybe the agent said, 
this is a really solid role mm-hmm. opposite him. And I, right. So could be maybe. Yeah. I, I, Where I, are you at? What do you think? As a, I've never acted in this capacity, but if I was like in this kind of realm and like, I would love the opportunity. Like if I saw someone that in character buying it, cause I, I love when people like can shed back the veil of filmmaking and movies and cause we've been on sets before mm-hmm. and it's just like, it's like, it's so phony. Uh, so phony. And there's so much standing around to like mm-hmm. an actor to totally just push all that away and say like, no, I'm this guy. I'm believe I think I'm this guy to get in a space with someone like that would, it would just, it would make you want to just be better and just like be go toe to toe with that. And you're right. I think the writing, maybe uh, Anderson's script allows Eli Sunday to be the wimpish version of that, but still stand out. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's, there's something to say with that. A couple things. Oh, speaking of Eli Sunday, I mean, Paul Dana was only slated to play Paul Sunday, the brother. And they actually had to fire the Eli Sunday actor two weeks into into filming, and they brought Dano on to just play both parts. So, really? Yeah. So uh, this film, yeah, again, two Oscars, actor and cinematography, $25 million budget, $76 million gross. So <laughs> decent chunk of change for mm-hmm. uh, especially a film like this. Yeah. Uh, written with Daniel Day-Lewis in mind, and the only reason that Paul Thomas Anderson didn't have hesitation was because he had heard through the grapevine that Daniel Day-Lewis liked his film Punch Drunk Love, so there was a reason to go pursue him as an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- one of the most profound influences on... Um, Lewis's character and the writing of the screenplay and Paul Thomas Anderson watched this every night before going to bed was treasure of the Sierra Madre. I can definitely see that. Mm-hmm. And he said, John Houston was an influence on the writing of the plain view character. So yeah, I can also see that sure a very injured both physically and then per uh, personally as well. Uh, let's see here. Anything else? I think that's about it. Uh, 2007 was kind of a hell of a year at the Academy Awards. It was kind of up against No Country for Old Men. Uh, this film made the number one list, like end of year lists, like number one film on so many people's publications and websites and, and whatnot. I mean, it was a really well-regarded year for film in, in general. Like 2007 was like on it. And that's not even throwing a film like David Fincher's Zodiac that didn't get even a shred of any like Oscar consideration. I mean, isn't that the three burials of Melchiavus Estrada? Mm-hmm. And isn't that also Michael Clayton the same year? Yep. That's a big year. No country man. for old men. I mean, yeah, it was, it was a big year for film. So, a mm-hmm. uh, lot to choose from. What's your favorite tasting note of there will be blood. There's a lot, but I'm going to pick one that's maybe a little bit off the beaten path. When that Derek explodes and there's fire going everywhere. It looks great. It looks great. And there's a safety element to that as well. Mm -hmm. And to take that in what's essentially a very heavy dialogue character piece Mm -hmm. and present that big splashy action bit in there. And then having the characters run around as they are just soaked in oil, plain view carrying HW to safety, quote Mm -hmm. unquote safety. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's terrific. And then I'm curious as the Derek burns down, like I have a lot of questions about the engineering of this oil. Why did they take those mallets and hit the stakes up from the ground? Because things burning anyway. Yeah. Is that an attempt to save it? And then there's so much action and fire and oil and so many cameras working. There is a technical component to that scene. The music in that scene is very weird too. 
Mm, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It, that's just really masterful filmmaking in my opinion. Doesn't that seem like something too? I mean, we like natural light and the revenant. It feels like something that like was like relied on like the sun setting to light that whole scene too. Yeah. Good choice. What if you screw it up, Jesse? I know, you, you better get that scene right today. Yeah. Or otherwise you, you're not going to build that derelict again. Otherwise day Lewis is going to come and yell at you. <laughs> exactly. So that's one I'm going to go with. How about you? Mine's the, the Oscar bit that I played. Uh, the I've abandoned my child. I mean, it's just so powerful. It's so well shot, so well acted. It's it, to me, it's the moment of the film where I'm like, man, this film locked into something truly special. Actor, director, writing, uh, set design. I mean, they made me feel like I was in 1911 California. And this insane man that's just literally becoming one of the best villains I've ever seen on screen. So I'm going to have to give it that one. Good. I think there's a lot to choose from here, but what's the... Oh, my God! We need to take a shot of the Russell's Reserve Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Ten-year-old, are, but you don't take shots of this. You drink it softly and you sip it. So Neat. What's your oh, my God moment of there will be blood? How much grace do you give me with moment? That means going to be seen yeah no you can do whatever you want that's a day six of podcasting school you ask your co-host what's the rules are before you just jump in yeah we teach that school it's the bowling alley scene Mm. um the final two blows with the bowling pin are actually almost a bit of a relief because that intense scene is over (laughs) because up to that point it is white knuckling harrowing action between Mm -hmm. these two opposing forces. So when he finally finishes him off, you're getting to the inevitable, which you knew was coming ultimately. Mm -hmm. And strangely enough, this time that two bowling pins head smashed was like, okay, finally Mm -hmm. it's over. That's a strange reaction for me to have in a film, but that's why that's my choice for this scene. But I'm giving that whole, Disavowing your religion. Yeah, that's, a, that's the whole, all of it. That's wild. Yep. Passed out black drunk on the bowling alley lane with a beef jerky steak next to you. <laughs> what the hell? It's cold pork chop. <laughs> uh, mine's going to be the turning the back on Eli as he walks away from the train. I mean, that's just Mr. Godfather. Such a visual image uh, that just says so much. Mm-hmm. I like in film when a director and a cinematographer can tell me a lot with a shot, then they can't saying something. That says you know, were like sentences, you know, deep of what that means. It's, that's the moment he truly doesn't care about uh, his son anymore. To put or he's up. so heartbroken. Or he he's so heartbroken. I mean, I mean, we could just, we could go two different ways with that. I mean, and both those work so good. They both work. Yeah. Good choice. Cause they both come to the same conclusion. Yeah. This is a good choice. Uh, who's the master distiller on there will be blood. Oh boy. This is a tough one. Mm-hmm. Because Paul Thomas Anderson with this film, I think, is if Boogie Nights was, I'm kind of figuring it out, and then I got this great idea, and he arrives with that, and then Magnolia allows him to expand on that. To me, this is like a film where he's just like, I'm good, I know what I'm doing, and like I'm in such control of my craft that I, I kind of understand what I'm doing. That being said... yeah. I think this is Daniel Day Lewis's best performance. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm gonna have to go that. Me too. I mean, I can't. I can't say something like it's the best acting performance of all time and not go with him. Yeah. I mean, 
method acting has its pros and cons, but in a film like this, I mean, you get something truly special. A villain that has such, it's oil so meaningless, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, in the grand scheme of things of film, I mean, he's he's not Hannibal Lecter and, like, killing and eating people. He's not Darth Vader trying to take over, like, the mm-hmm. galaxy. He's just this guy that's just trying to make money, and he's so evil in the way that he does it. Mm-hmm. So I have to give it to him, too. I mean, all the clips we played, if that wasn't enough, yeah. I mean, the voice, the walking, the body language, I mean, everything he does in this is just so thought out, both from his perspective and from the writing. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're not going to find a character like this. I mean, I we probably haven't seen a character like this since this film's come out. It's good. Yeah. How are you going to rate and grade There Will Be Blood? It's top shelf with a bullet. <clears throat> I asked you. We is should this put that on a T-shirt. We've been, we've been saying that a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you if this is the greatest film since 2000 Beyond. My answer to that is yes, it is. This is one of the ooh, top five films that's ever been made. I wouldn't say this is my favorite, but top films, it's up there. This is Vertigo, Shawshank. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's an amazing film. But one that I'll watch once every ten years, maybe. And for all those accolades that I can heap on it, I don't know if it is for everybody. Mm-mm, no way. You're going to have to grind through some pieces, and I don't mean in a way that like this is so boring because I don't think it is, but this is film. This is a heavy film, right? This is not. There's no movie in this. No, yeah. This is a film. Yeah. So there you go. Best film since 2000. Uh, uh, I think films like Inception, Whiplash. Mm-hmm. Mad Max Fury Road, give it close to a run for its money. Okay. Like it's they're, they're all in the conversation. It's a it's a great top five if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, top shelf absolutely. Even though I think it's the fifth entry in that mank. Hell no. <laughs> Seven in Zodiac, uh, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, not nah, get mank the hell out of there. All right. Oh, oh, seven's ninety five. Uh, even though I think this time especially, it took me. I'll be honest, it took me two to three days to actually sit through and watch this film. It's a long watch. It's a long, overlong movie. And I there was a part of this film that we just totally took out completely, a whole 30-minute chunk of it. Even taking that out, it's still, this is, to me, Boogie Nights is probably his most watchable film. I could, I could tune that on and watch it all the time. Mm-hmm. This is his best movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen everything. So I feel like I can give the Jesse argument on to why I think that is best. It's just so well put together. It's, you know, cerebral filmmaking, dramatic filmmaking at such a good level. Not like Oscar bait, you know what I mean? It's like really well thought out. Everything's really well put together. And Daniel Day, this is this is the best acting we've ever seen in a movie. I'm mm-hmm. going to stick with that. I mm-hmm. mean, it's it's remarkable. So that deserves top shelf. Even if the rest of the movie was shit and it was still the best acting I've ever seen, it's getting a top shelf rating. I mean, my God. Love it. Uh, well, that's There Will Be Blood 2007. We're going to wrap this thing up with a little nightcap. This is going to be fun. I, I, I want to know what you're going to pick for this one.
excellent. That that song was on heavy rotation on my iPod in the late 2000s. I loved listening to that little, it's like concerto in D major. Hmm. I used to listen to it all the time. I loved it because I loved how this the, the how this film ended almost like kind of joyously, mm-hmm. even though it's so grim. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that in movies. My nightcap question to you this week, Matt, is we've talked about the accolades and the brilliance and the prowess of Daniel Day-Lewis. Maybe 85 to, let's just say, 2007, this film. Uh, arguably the best actor of that generation, mm-hmm. of all generations. In kind of like where we're at in the film acting movie space, who do you think has the potential to be the next great actor? I mean, Marlon Brando, Pacino, De Niro, Tom Hanks, Daniel Day-Lewis. Who's next? Who's on your list of someone to either watch for or he's already or he's already there? I'm going to try to stay under the age of 50 so that there's enough room to kind of keep going a little bit. And that takes me to Joaquin Phoenix. Mm. Uh, there's such versatility there. It's a good thing he came back from <laughs> mm-hmm, whatever, whatever that. that I'm not there, that, that crazy thing. Right. Good thing that was a phase or a job. <laughs> Going back to For Keeps, mm-hmm. I think that's the first film I ever saw him mm-hmm. in. Uh, I don't know of a film. I don't love everything that he's done. Like I didn't love her or she or whatever that phone thing was called. Oh, her. her. We saw that movie together. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't know if I love that film, but he was still really good in it. Mm-hmm. The film was okay. You know how I feel about the AI mm-hmm. sentient thing. So, <laughs> it's, but, uh, I can't. I, I sat there and I really worked hard to think about something. Yeah. Even the master, for as much as I never finished that film because it was not good. It was just so dry. It wasn't because of him. I think I made it through about halfway, and we finally just said that that's a, it's enough. Yeah, he's good at that. I'm gonna go with Joaquin. Good Phoenix. choice. Makes terrific films. You know what movies I really like Joaquin Phoenix in? Gladiator. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I just did my thumbs down, everybody. Yeah. But Signs mm-hmm. as his brother. We got to do Signs one of these days. That movie. Swing away, Meryl. Oh, I, I love Joaquin. That was, I think that was the first movie I actually ever saw him in. Was signs. Think about that from the master to signs. Yeah, it's such a range of, of things and to die for, right? Mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman? Mm-hmm. Good. Did I say for keeps. That's what I meant was to die for. That's okay. What, that's what okay. I said for yeah, keeps. Yeah. I meant to die for. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to do that film too. Yeah. Ooh. We'll do that in Jade and uh, Crush. Okay. Is that the one with Alicia Silverstone? Mm-hmm. 90s erotic thrillers. Love it. Excellent. Great choice. Thanks. Joaquin Phoenix, what do you got? Matt. He said, I got to tell everybody before you answer this. Uh huh. Jesse's told me that I was going to be really, really surprised with this. So I spent <laughs> several days grinding in my mind, like what sort of non traditional choice is okay. he going to make here? And <laughs> I have an idea, but I'm going to let you answer it first. And then I'm going to say what I thought it was. Okay. All right. This well, is my thought on who okay. your answer is going to uh, be. Well, it's because it made me think because I've become a really big fan of this actor in the last couple of years. And I think he's kind of gotten out of the space that we're familiar with him. And he can now get into the roles that like Joaquin Phoenix and Daniel Day-Lewis can. Uh, the actor is Adam Driver. Mm, way wrong. Yeah. I was going to go Remy Malik. Oh, oh. <laughs> Maybe Bond needs to come out. I need to see what that's all about. But I am becoming a huge fan of Adam Driver. I mean, Hmm. we can arguably say Kylo Ren was the best part of the sequel trilogy, that character. And 
Um, but between that marriage story and all kind of the stuff he has in the pipeline, I am so looking forward to seeing what this guy is going to do because he's got the chops. And I love his story. I mean, he was a Marine that enlisted after 9-11 and like <clears throat> kind of had like a Marine acting troupe and they kind of went and did like USO type of shows uh, kind of around uh, around the country and around the world and He's a Juilliard trained actor. The guy's got the chops. I mean, when you get pigeonholed into something like Star Wars, you're a bit limited at times because of upper management. But when you get to kind of unloose that, you guys check out Marriage Story. Check out Logan Lucky. Oh, my God. He's amazing in that. Black Klansman. His arm that gets sucked into the vacuum. I laughed. So, yeah, Black Klansman. He's great in Black Klansman. Yeah, that's a good choice, dude. Uh, I think he's close. I mean, we'll we'll find out here in a couple of years, but he's kind of a roll or two away from, like, arriving. But that's what prompted me because I've been thinking about him a lot lately and and just kind of, like, just acting in general. As a craft, and I, I talked to you, too, about the actors that act for craft and the actors that act for a paycheck. And to me, there's a discernible difference between the two. What do you want him in next? Where do you see you're his agent and you get to give him his next role? What do you want him in? Well, I want him to make a movie and he actually made a movie with this director already, but he seems tailor made to make another movie with Martin Scorsese again. Do you want something gangsterish? Gangster or just something maybe political, like a political thriller would be probably be pretty good. I don't know. I just I just want to see him just just stretch out those chops again. Maybe something like there will be blood, a period uh, like antagonist like greed epic. Any consideration to Gosling? He's he's just he's so quietly subdued in almost all of his films, but that's not a bad thing. I mean, it's he's really good in uh, uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, Ides of March, like a lot of these films uh, of his. Uh, another actor who's like almost like on par with they it is Christian Bale. I mm-hmm. mean, the guy transforms his body and then just like acts the shit out of like the films he's in. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and Michael Fassbender uh, uh, came into consideration. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree with all those choices. Anyone else for you? No, that's pretty much it. Um, there's people that I like that um, I strangely like Zac Efron, and I don't even know why, but I don't think he's a good actor. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's a, yeah. So there's some stuff on the periphery out there that, um, I actually do think that Remy Malik has a, a chance, but he's, he's a couple of very different sort of shaped roles away from getting there. Um, yeah. Yeah. One more just honorable mention because I'm just anxious to see what he does once his contract has been fulfilled and it has been fulfilled. I think Robert Downey Jr. is one of our current best modern actors, and I want to see him do something outside of the Marvel spectrum that's just like to the level of like Chaplin and Kiss, 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 Bang, Bang and like all those films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm curious. It it can be Doolittle because everyone hated that movie, rightly so, but whatever he's got next that's a little more intense sign me up i love him do back to school part two man i mean i would go i would go see that (laughs) yeah there's a lot of roles i could see him in i want to see him as like the grifter and i don't mean in a noir could work in noir maybe he's a little bit old but i would be so good in film noir wouldn't he yes i know 
Yeah. You know who I always thought he'd be? I thought I always thought he'd be a really good commissioner, Gordon. Oh, yeah. I don't know why, but like, mm-hmm. I think he would just kind of chew that scenery for that. Mm-hmm. Matt, this has been a lot of fun talking about There Will Be Blood from 2007. Uh, again, yeah, it's a film I've only seen a handful of times, but I've always been extremely fond of it, much like yourself. Next week, we're going to wrap up this cask. Uh, maybe this is where we have the shoe on the other foot, finally. Yep. Uh, I'll grab us some music sound clips for next week, but you got to come over. We're going to mm-hmm. do this raw. Mm-hmm. Next week, we're going to do Punch Drunk Love. I have never seen this movie before, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm going to spend as much time watching you as I am watching the film. Okay, yeah. Uh, this will be, I think, viewing four for me, so I'm fairly familiar with okay. it. Okay. Yeah, so we haven't done this yet. We haven't had this shoe on the other foot, proverbially, this way yet. This will be great, and we haven't talked about Adam Sandler before, so it'll yeah. be fun to talk about him and all. This is such a different movie for him compared to like his comedy route because when he's got a decent script and like a dramatic playground to play with, I mean, he's fairly decent, um, and he's also good in the comedic space if that's your cup of tea. Uh, so it'll be fun to talk about him and Mr. Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. This is going to be a trip next week. You're going to be, uh, I think, taken down a very interesting road. Oh, man. I don't, I, don't even, I honestly, other than it being like a faux romantic comedy of sorts. Mm, sort of. I don't know what this movie's about. And I'm going to keep that mindset. I'm not even going to do any notes, research. I'm just, when I turn it on, when you come on Saturday morning, boom, we're going in. I can't wait to break down the piano with you. <laughs> we have a whole... Discussion right. about a piano. All righty. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, cheers, cheers man. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram. Sign up on the Patreon, patreon.com slash Smile Films. We got a bunch of fun merch. Uh, Great right. stuff in Public this week, everybody. Take a look. Yeah, go, Two fantastic choices for sure. Go grab your Brock Lander shirt and your drainage shirt. Yep. Uh, and we'll queue up some really good content for the next cast, which mm-hmm. is going to be dynamite everyone i don't want to allude too much but it's something matt and i have wanted to do probably since we started this podcast yeah uh but until then matt cheers i gotta get going i'm gonna go start drilling in the backyard i think there's a mountain of oil underneath uh, uh, my backyard over there i'm gonna go find out for myself i promise i won't let the big steel beam hit you in the head down that <laughs> hole thank you i don't need a traumatic brain injury to end out this day Amen. we'll see you all next week everybody have a good week we'll see you in the dark thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash Films for exclusive bonus episodes, plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. There Will Be Blood is property of Paramount Vantage, Goulardi Film Company, and Scott Rudin Productions and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Mr. Daniel? I'm finished. <laughs>